to be here with you all this morning again. I, I have been here before. Some of you uh, maybe weren't here or don't remember me, but I have been here before. It's great to be back with you all again this morning. This morning we're going to be looking at Psalm 96. If you want to turn in your Bibles there or look is it somewhere up, I'm guessing, or it's in Bibles, bulletins on the screen. There's, there's many ways that you can look at this text of Scripture, but I would just love for you to get your eyes eyes on this text. It was a, it was a text that, that really jumped out to me not too long ago uh, for various reasons that we're going to talk about, but it's a, it's, a, it's a wonderful text of Scripture. Keep in mind, this is written by King David, and we'll talk about it a little bit more once we read it, but written by King David, uh, who lived a thousand years before Christ came. And obviously, under the inspiration of the of the Spirit. It's a wonderful, a wonderful psalm and much for us to learn in it. Uh, this is God's Word. Please, therefore, give careful attention to its reading. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord and bless His name. Tell of His salvation from day to day. Declare His glory among the nations, His marvelous work among all the peoples. For great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. Let's read the reading of God's word. May he add his blessing to it. Let's pray and ask him to bless our time in his word. Heavenly Father, this is your word. Uh, You have given it by inspiration of your Holy Spirit. We believe it is infallible, it is inerrant. It is true. It is authoritative. And therefore, Lord, we should look to it and submit ourselves to the teaching of Scripture. We should should stand not in judgment of it, but to put ourselves underneath it. And we pray that your Spirit, the same Spirit that inspired Scripture, would illuminate this morning, that we would indeed have eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to receive, hands to apply, feet to walk out uh, what we hear this morning. We commit ourselves to you. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, author John Dixon tells the story of being in a coffee shop, and he was talking with a friend, and you know how conversations in a coffee shop, some of them can be a little bit loud. You can kind of end up hearing everything other people are saying. In this conversation, he was talking to his friend about how his church was getting the word out in their community about Jesus Christ, how they were spreading the gospel. 
And uh, someone from another table that was nearby uh, overheard, got wind of the conversation, approached him and, and really let him have it. And, and said this, the, the lady said this to him, so you want to convert the world? How dare you? And she stormed out of the coffee shop. You want to convert the world to Christ, for Christ? You want everyone to be a Christian? Amen. You see where I'm going with this. Dixon said he was a little bit rattled at this. He was a little bit uh, taken aback. He was a little confused. And he had to think it through again. Think it through, is this the right thing to do? You know, we live, in a, we live in a time where actually there are a lot of people that believe that the only way for a person to be saved is by believing the gospel, by believing in Christ. But they also, those same people, will, will confess that it's wrong to tell other people about Jesus. That, that's the day that we're living in. We, we live in a day where people will say, hey, listen, if you want to believe in Jesus, fine. Just keep it to yourself. Just, you respect other people's views, you let them do their thing, you go about your business, but keep it to yourself. Because it's hateful, it's, it's uh, wrong, it's morally um, improper for you to put your thoughts and beliefs on other people. And so I just, I want to I put that to you as we start here this morning, um, Is that our place to proclaim the good news? Is, is it our place to tell other people about Jesus? How does the topic of evangelism, outreach, how does that hit you? How does that strike you? How, do you? how does it make you feel? Here's the takeaway I want us to walk away with this morning. This, this comes as I, as I summarize this psalm, Psalm 96. The Lord our God is great and is greatly to be praised and worshipped by all creatures, great and small, without exception. Without exception. And so what are the implications of that? The context here, it's interesting, a lot of the Psalms don't give us a context. We don't actually know when they were written or why they were written. This one we do know because... Uh, in First Chronicles 16, we read the very same words. King David bringing the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem from the house of Obed-Edom. Uh, he had made the effort before, was trying to bring the Ark there before, and then uh, the Ark started moving. One of his buddies stuck his hand out, and God smote him, and he died. And so David said, we're going to take a break here. We're going to regroup and uh, drop the Ark off at Obed-Edom's house. And now as he's regrouped and gotten things together and figured out the way that this is supposed to be done, the ark is now going to Jerusalem, and the significance of this, a thousand years before Christ came, okay, is that the ark of the covenant is the place where God's glory dwelt. It's the place where he promised to dwell, and then God chose the city of Jerusalem and said, I'm going to put my name there, and so now you have God's presence in God's place, and David is rejoicing. God's presence in God's place, the triumphal entry of sorts has taken place, Derek Kidner calling, uh, saying of this, uh, event, God crowned his victory by planting his throne in the enemy's former citadel. 
God plants his throne in the enemy's former citadel. And so in David's mind, this is a tremendous victory, a reason to rejoice, to praise, the cause for celebration. God is the king. God is enthroned, not just a king in, among the Israelites, but of the world. And I want you to think with me geographically. I was struck by this years ago, uh, thinking about Israel as just kind of one nation among the nations. Uh, and then I was struck by, at one point in time, as I looked at a map, and I looked how small, uh, how small the land of Israel was. Geographically, how small it was. And is, yeah, to this, and is. And then all of these massive nations around that God defended Israel from when he wanted to, and then allowed the uh, foreigners in when he wanted to judge his people. But the nerve, listen, the nerve of David's saying, the whole world should worship the God of Israel. Think of this. But this is exactly what we see David saying here in this cause for celebration, God is the king, not just of little tiny Israel, but of the entire earth, of the entire created order. He is the God of all people everywhere, all times and all places, period. And again, what are the implications, therefore, of that? This is a psalm of celebration, a celebratory hymn. This is a psalm of invitation for the nations to join with God's chosen people in the worship and adoration of their God. And finally, it's a prophetic document looking down to the end of time when God will judge the world in righteousness. But I want us to simply think about these two things this morning, worship and witness, praise and proclamation, um, starting first with, with worship, the what of, of worship here. Uh, Our priority as Christians, and I hope we all understand this and know this, our priority as Christians is to worship the Lord. It's interesting to me, as I run into people from time to time uh, that that will will profess to be Christian believers, but but there's no context in which they worship God. They they would call themselves Christians because they don't worship any other God, or, or so they would say, but they don't join themselves to a local church and worship the Lord with the covenant community on the Lord's day. And the Lord has set aside, set aside for himself very clearly in Scripture a day for himself and a people for himself to gather corporately to worship him in the way that he's laid down in Scripture for him to be worshipped. God says, I want to be worshipped by my people in these ways. The elements that we use in our worship service, maybe you're not familiar with this, but the elements that we have in our worship service are given to us by God. We don't just think them up on our own and say, I think God would like this. I like to think of God uh, receiving this worship, and we kind of want to have God baptized the way that we do worship. And even in worship sometimes, like our worship can be selfish. We can still have ourselves at the middle of our worship when we worship God in the way that we want to worship God. And that's improper. It's it's wrong. And so we were made to worship God. We were made to worship God rightly and properly the way that he wants us to worship. It's not an exaggeration to say um, worship is why you exist. 
Now ask yourself the question, practically speaking, the way that you live your life this week, last week, leading up to this morning, why do you exist? What does your life give evidence of? What are you living for? And I know it's difficult. I know we, we've talked about the gospel already. We'll talk about the gospel more. We are, we are certainly imperfect. And we certainly need grace and forgiveness every day of our lives. But God and the worship of God should be at the center of who we are and what we do. This is, this is the foundation. This is, this is the starting point. Everybody worships. Everybody worships someone or something. The question is, do you have the right God? And then do you worship in the right way? That's foundational. That's fundamental. Somebody defined worship this way. Worship is the due response, what is owed, of rational creatures, those with the faculty of their minds, to the self-revelation of their creator and redeemer. And listen, if God, God never saved, never redeemed anyone, he would still be infinitely worthy of our worship, just as a creator. And so this is the way David kind of assumes this. He assumes worship is proper with the imperatives that just come out right off the bat. Sing to the Lord three times in verses 1 and 2. Bless his name, verse 2. Praise him and fear him, verse 4. Ascribe glory to him, which simply means give to him what is due, what is proper. He's glorious, so call him glorious. Worship and tremble before him, verse 9. And so this is just that, that great idea, right? There is but one true and living God. There's one king of the universe. This is the most basic doctrine of Scripture. In the beginning, God. And that means he deserves all of our allegiance. That means he deserves the allegiance of all. There were many loud voices in our culture calling for our worship and our allegiance. And um, don't you give it. I've been thinking through this psalm for a few months now, and I've preached it a few different times. There are so many voices calling for our allegiance and our worship in our culture. And it reminded me to the time that the New Testament was being written when Paul the Apostle would write, Jesus is Lord. And we say, yeah, he is. We get that. Yeah, he is. And he read it over and over again. But the background of why he would say that over and over again was because in that culture, they would say, Caesar is Lord. Take a, take a pinch of incense and sacrifice it to Caesar and then go about your business and do your Christian thing. That's fine. Do it. And Paul would write, Jesus is Lord. Don't do it. Don't do it. And the worship of our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the true worship of God says that God is God and all the other little g-gods are nothing, as the psalm says. They are no thing in comparison and they are not to be bowed to. And so listen, when there is a a hard choice to make to say, I'm going to bow here so that my life is easier and then go back to Christ, don't you do it. Don't bow. Look around at the cultural gods, little g, and don't you bow to them. Stand up for Christ. Bow the knee to God alone.
God deserves all of our allegiance. He deserves the allegiance of all. And the false gods, whether they be um, gods that people you know, think they should worship or cultural things, remember Psalm 115, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. But in contrast, the psalmist says, their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but don't speak, eyes but don't see, ears but don't hear, noses but don't smell, hands but don't feel, feet but don't walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. And he says, verse 8, Psalm 115, verse 8, those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. And the principle stands and will stand forever that you become like what you worship. And if you worship man-made idols and gods, you will degrade yourself. And if you worship the true and the living God, you will become more like him, more Christ-like, which is the plan of God for you, Romans 8, 29. So worship is about submission, reverence, awe, losing our self-focus and finding it in something bigger than ourselves, a storyline bigger than our own storyline, a story that's grander than anything we can imagine in our own imaginations. And singing, I just want to point this out quickly, that singing is commanded in Scripture. You know, singing is in our, in our worship because God loves singing, because God has ordained it to be so. Singing changes us. Singing, when we sing, it changes us on the inside. Singing changes the people next to us when they hear us worship the true and living God. It affects us as we sing hymns and songs, spiritual songs before the Lord. It affects us because God has ordained it to be so. And sometimes I go into churches, I go into a lot of churches, friends, and I preach in a lot of places, and I see people that don't sing, and I wonder what's going on there. And I understand, if you're, if you're here today and, and you're, you're not sure about God and you're not sure about Christ yet, and, and you see these songs in the bulletin, you're like, I'm not really sure if I want to I jump in there. I'm not sure if I really believe these things. So you're kind of observing. I get that. But I want to say this in a kind of a gentle way, as gently as I can. If you're not singing in worship, there's something wrong. If you're a Christian believer and you're not singing, it's disobedient. I'm just saying. And you say, well, I don't like to sing. It's not about you. Worship is not about us. First and primarily, it's about him. And God calls us to sing in our worship. And you say, I don't sing well. Neither do I. I make sure they turn off my mic every time when I'm in the front. But the Psalms over and over again say, make a joyful noise. It's joyful. And I would say, as I, as, as I, as I focus on church planning, as, as we, and we'll talk about that in the Sunday school hour, I hope you all can, every one of you can be there to hear about church planning in Southern California Presbytery. But music is really important. When you enter into a church, if you're an outsider, if you're a visitor, if you're thinking about joining a church or coming because you're moving into town or whatever the case may be, singing is really important. Does a church sing well? And I'm not saying, do they sound like a choir? I mean, are they all trained professionals? I'm saying, do they have a joyful spirit? Are they excited to sing and praise their God because of who he is and what he's done? So I would just encourage you, work at it. Like, get the hymns beforehand. If you don't know what they're going to be, I don't know, reach out, find out, practice them. 
Sing well. Sing loud. Sing as if God is worthy and deserving. Because he is. And so, we have here the new songs. Just touching on it briefly. As we worship passionately, we worship joyfully. Matthew Henry talks about new songs being the product of new affection, new affections clothed with new expressions. In Scripture, new songs were written during new seasons of God work, God's work, when God had accomplished victory, when God was doing new things. Each stage of redemptive history brought out new wonders of God's grace. Each new song um, was carrying forward the grand theme of saving grace that was revealed way back in Genesis 3 at the beginning Uh, the first promise of the gospel. But new songs are throughout Scripture, and we continue to sing new songs. We continue to sing songs to the Lord. Now, the why of worship, we talked about the what of worship, the why of worship, what motivates, what moves us for David again, as we just said, uh, the new location of the ark, God's presence in God's place. But for us, think about where we live in redemptive history. It wasn't just God in a box, but in a person. I, I think of, um, I was thinking of just this morning in the book of Exodus, when uh, the, the people of God were in captivity. And it says that God saw their situation and God came down. And you trace this theme throughout Scripture. And you see this idea that God, God is coming down. And, and David, again, is very excited because God has come down. And he's, and he's promised to be in this box. And he's, he's in this place, in this city. But we don't have just God in a box in a city. We have God in the person of Jesus Christ coming down into the world. That, that is magnificent. That is glorious. Jesus Christ came and became like you in every single way. Sin accepted. What do you do with that? God becoming man? Fully God and fully man in two distinct natures natures in one person forever? That's what we know. We know that God didn't just in the person of Jesus Christ, rent a body. Now, he's in a perfected state now, but he's in a body like yours for all of eternity. That is a glorious reality. Entering time and space, entering his own creation to live here, to die here, to rise again and to ascend to the Father's right hand where he rules and reigns right now, brothers and sisters, over all things. Infinitely worthy, deserving of our worship. And it says here, you know, just think about the fact that God is great. It says there in verse 4. God is great. Great is the Lord. Uh, that's a word that's overused in our day, I think. H- how you doing today? Ah, I'm great. How are you? Ah, great. It's great. But God is great in the truest sense of the word. God is great in magnitude and extent. 
God is great in intensity, in importance. He's great. He's infinitely excellent in his wisdom, power, dominion. He's great over all things. He, he contains unimaginable greatness. Only God is great. The gods of this world, little g-gods, the nations, they're but idols. He's great in his nature, in his essence. He's great in his authority over all things. His name is great. His power is great. His actions and his activities, great. His judgments are great. His perfections are great. He's great in his holiness. He's great in his love. He's great in his wrath and his mercy. He is essentially great in himself, perfect in and by himself. But his greatness is not just seen in the fact that he is. His greatness is not just seen in the fact that he exists. His greatness is not just seen in the fact that he's our creator and we are his creatures. He's infinitely worthy of our worship for those realities. But he's also great because of the salvation that he brings us in Christ Jesus. You know, if that ever becomes something that just becomes oh, oh, a ho-hum thing for us, you need to repent. The greatness of God's salvation is absolutely marvelous. And it should move us to worship. It should move us to obedience. It should move us to live in different ways that are hard ways. It should help us to recalibrate our lives, to, to uh, reorder, to reconstitute our priorities. To say, God, you are indeed first. You are why I exist. You are what I exist for. But as we move on to the second point, our witness Think of these things. As you think about worshiping, as you think about submission, you know, as you think about these things, worship is amazing. It helps us to understand, to find ourselves in the proper narrative. It helps us to understand what life is all about, God's glory. But worship isn't just for some people. I'm retouching on ideas. It's for all people. Worship can help us and lead us to understand that God made us for global purposes. Sometimes we can get really focused on maybe just our church. Maybe just our community. Listen, I, I come here and I worship at Branch and we're involved. We have some great activities going on, fun stuff at the mall, you know, a hymn sing, all these things are great. But if we fail to turn out, if we fail to look outside the walls to those that aren't yet converted, listen, we haven't done what God wants us to do. I, I developed some talks on evangelism uh, several years ago, and I, as I was just working on them, I was just kind of thinking, the, the visualization was this idea of us coming together, and I'm, I'm guessing you guys come from a good distance around. You're, you're not just here in this really close proximity. You guys are coming from different places, and then you're coming here on the Lord's Day, and then you're going back. 
to your communities, to your workplace, to your schools, to your sporting teams or your you know, book clubs or whatever the case may be. And you're coming here and you're receiving from God's word. You're receiving the truth of God's word and you're responding in worship, in, fe- in fellowship, in service here in the church. But the model is, and then you go back and if you're silent, that you haven't completed the loop. You come here to receive and to worship and then the goal of God is to go back out and to tell people what you've told God while you were here, what you've told one another while you were here. It's the same thing that you go out and tell other people. You don't have to have one message as you come here and worship God, one message as you talk to other people, and then a different message to tell other people out there. It's the same message. Our God is great. He's the creator. He's the sustainer. He's worthy and deserving of all of our worship. And as the the psalm goes on to say, he will judge the world in righteousness on the last day for those that will not bow the knee, that will not repent of their sins and trust in the Savior. The things we tell them in worship are the things we speak to others and witness. And even our worship fuels and motivates and helps us to reprioritize. Listen, it's not about my comfort because I remember that from worship. I remember that from the sermon. I need to repent of that. I like ease. I like comfort. I like safety. But what I realized on Sunday was those things are wrong. I should be growing in sacrificial living, reaching out to others, fueling that passion, fueling that change. God being king over all of creation has implications that all people should love and serve him, that every single person should give their allegiance to them, and that those people that are out there, maybe you know or maybe you don't know, they should be in here worshiping with us. That's what they were created for. It's not just what you were created for that are a Christian right now. It's what they were created for that are living all different sorts of ways. They were created in the image of God. They were created to know him and serve. And I will tell you this, whatever they're doing with their life, they are not satisfied in it. They are not happy doing it. Do you know how many things I tried before I became a Christian? And I was like 20 when I became a Christian, but I was doing all sorts of different things. I was acting like it was cool and it was fun or I was happy and satisfied, but I just went from one thing to another because nothing fit. Why? Because nothing does fit. There's nothing out there. You can numb the pain. You can dull the pain. You can, you know, mask the sorrow, but until people come to know their creator through Jesus Christ, they will never be happy. And if there's anyone listening here in this room today, uh, if you don't know Christ, maybe other people think you do and you don't. Maybe nobody thinks you do and you don't. Whatever the case may be, Christ is the answer. He's the only answer. He's the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through him. There's one God and one mediator between God and men. It's the man, Christ Jesus, and that is it. 
And there's only one way that it could be so. Because there's only one that could be fully God and fully man. There's only one that could take the hand of God himself and take the the hand of sinful man and bring reconciliation. And it's through his perfect life and his sin-bearing death. This This is the greatest news this world, listen, this is the greatest news this world has ever or will ever hear. And you have it, you know it. And you praise God for it every Sunday. But do you finish the loop in taking it back to your community, to your workplace? And listen, I would also say this. You don't have to do all of it. You don't have to preach a 30-minute sermon to the guy that sits next to you in your office, in the cubicle next to you at work. As I was listening to a guy recently, put a pebble in their shoe. Just give them something to to think about, something that's bugging them a little bit. Just a a little here, a little there. A little hint to point them in directions. Ask them some questions about their worldviews. Get it started. I know there are people sitting here thinking, this is just too much, it's overwhelming. Just start with a small thing. Just be uh, convinced that this is the right way to go. Ask God to help you. And just look for opportunities to say something, anything, about how great your God is. Listen, we all evangelize. You find a new restaurant in town that you like? Man, this place is so good. This new Italian restaurant down the street, you got to go. Women, I'm, I'm, I, I hear uh, shampoo, you know, that's a thing. Like, you find a shampoo you like, boom, you got to tell somebody about it. We tell people about things we like. Don't we like God enough to tell other people about it? So three things this psalm tells us to do. At least three, but just three for the nations. Declare his glory among the nations. Summon the nations to join and warn the nations about the judgment to come. This is what we should be about as Christian believers. That is the outflow. Listen, let me just put this on you right now. You're not done when you leave here today. You don't get to just shut down Christian mode and go back into world mode. Like I've done my worship, back to the way everybody else lives. Not if you're going to be obedient to God. You don't get to. So the call goes out. Notice, just note with me. David, an Israelite, small little ancient Near East country. The call goes out to all the earth, verse 1. The nations, verse 3a. All the peoples, 3b. He's to be feared above all the little g-gods that are but worthless idols. And the church is therefore commanded to, verse 2, Tell of his salvation. Declare his glory and marvelous works among all the peoples. That's verse 2 and verse 3. Tell the nations that the Lord reigns right now. He reigns right now. If he reigned 3,000 years ago, he certainly reigns today. Tell the nations that the Lord will judge. And so again, Matthew Henry says that these are instructions given by God about what to preach among the nations. These are the things we tell non-Christians as we witness when we come out of our worship. We just simply continue to say true things, though the audience changes. And I would just say this, too. Um, this, this has been striking to me. One of the things that, when I was putting together evangelism talks years ago, um, a, a young lady that was a pastor's daughter told me, uh, one of the reasons we have a hard time telling other people about God and about Christ is we actually growing up, never told each other about Christ inside the church. 
And then I was telling some buddies at Presbytery about this a few weeks ago, and they, two, two pastors said at the very same time, we should back it up one more step. We should talk to ourselves about the gospel first. We should, we should gospelize ourselves. And I know that became kind of a, um, a popular phrase a few years ago, but it's still really important for us to think about our, ourselves in light of the gospel realities. Every day. You don't just need to hear the gospel on Sundays. You need to hear and, and understand its implications every day. And then when you're in context, uh, uh, fellowship context with other people in the church, here's what I would exhort you to do. Look for ways to share gospel realities and gospel truths to other people, with other people. Speak scripture to one another. It's cool to talk about, you know, current events or whatever, but are you guys thinking about gospelizing one another in this church, honestly? Do you think about sharing scripture with other people? Not in, a, not in an annoying way, not just in some kind of like platitudes, but like in, in ways that would help, help one another, like uh, apply to get that salve down in there. And then it just becomes more natural to get the word out to other people that are outside of the church, outside of the four walls. God is great and greatly to be praised for his creating, for his sustaining, for his saving a people for himself. And so it's the outflow, the overflow of our worship. What we take in, what we receive in worship, we give out when we go out. Worship informed, shaped by the word. We are shaped and informed by the word. We take it out, take it in, and then we give it out. Worship fueling, motivating Christian witness. So uh, just one last thing to think about before we close. When we go out, we're not only focused on him. Like in our worship, we're focused on him, right? Like laser focused. We're like working to not drift. We're focused on God, infinitely worthy of our worship. And then when we go out, we're focused on God and other people. God is with us always, even to the end of the age. As we go out and we witness to other people, as we talk to other people about God, God is with us. God is still there, but we're just including other people made in his image that need to know him. And some of those people are his people, and they will, in fact, come to know him because he will regenerate them and grant them saving faith and repentance. And you, brothers and sisters, get to be a part of that wonderful work the privilege, and the responsibility of doing what God's doing in these last days until he comes again. David was excited as we close. David was excited when he wrote for good reason. God's presence was in God's place, and that's very exciting. But again, God didn't just come to a city in a box. He came to earth in the person of Jesus Christ. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, tabernacled among us, and John says we beheld his Glory, John 1.14. And when he came, he too was victorious. Shorter Catechism 26. Christ executes the office of a king in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. He came to gather a people for himself, to himself, from the four corners of the earth, from every tribe and every tongue and every people group, to be with him forevermore. Revelation 4 and 5 makes the case, sets the setting beautifully. We should know that text of Scripture. Let me just read these verses, Revelation 5, 9 and following. And they sang a new song, 
Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. The greatest new song ever written has to do with the resurrected, ascended Christ sitting on the throne, ruling and reigning over all things, winning the victory over sin, Satan, death, and the grave, given the new name above all names that at every knee would bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. All authority has been given to him, and with that authority, he commands his church to worship, and with that authority, he commissions his church to go and to make disciples of all the nations. There is no ground that is not covered. There is no person that is not responsible. And at the end of time, he will accomplish all his holy will and gather all his chosen race. And we, brothers and sisters, have the privilege, the duty to be a part of it. And let me just close with a, 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 a quote from 100 years ago. I just got this last night. I really liked it. A guy by the name of J. Campbell White, who worked with a layman's missionary movement, early 1900s, but the word is still dead on because these words are always and forever true. Most men, he says, are not satisfied with the permanent output of their lives. Nothing can wholly satisfy the life of Christ within his followers except the adoption of Christ's purpose toward the world he came to redeem. Fame, pleasure, and riches are but husks and ashes in contrast with the boundless and abiding joy of working with God for the fulfillment of his eternal plans. The men who are putting everything into Christ's undertaking are getting out of it life's sweetest and most priceless rewards. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much that you have called us to be your people, and that includes worship, and what flows out of our worship is witness. Pray for a holy boldness for us, for each of us, for all of us together. Pray for Branch of Hope to be a church that is passionate about not only taking the word in and worshiping here, but getting the word out in this community and beyond. We love you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen.